On the Empire Podcast this week, we are visited by the greatest set of brothers this side of the Decemlians. It's Joel and Ethan Cohen, directors of Hell Caesar. And also the Walking Dead star, Andrew Lincoln, pops by and holds up a series of, of cards with a really passive-aggressive display of love for us, which is kind of weird, but there you go. All that and the usual movie news and nonsense on the movie podcast that had two hours sleep last night because it was writing next month's cover feature and it is a hellish nightmare from which there is no escape I do hope you enjoy it hello pod I'm Chris Hewitt welcome to the Empire Podcast Uh, as usual I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning literally the only ones available first up is a man that I've introduced in the podcast recently as a rage filled career ender but I think that's because he had a very extravagant wild haircut that that contained all his rage genes Uh, he's now had a haircut so uh, John Nugent has the rage dissipated? Uh, yeah, I, I uh, well, <laughs> I think that's there's your answer. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. you're you're dosed up to the eyeballs on um, Tesco Barocca, which Tesco, is B Active Barocca. Other vitamin C based drinks okay. are available. Good. Um, yeah, I, I'm not really all there to be honest. So. Okay, <laughs> so I've had two hours sleep. You're not all there, um, James Dyer who is the second colleague of Such Lethal Cunning, a man who likes Aaron Sorkin. That's his introduction. I literally didn't have time to write a script, so I'm just uh, winging it here. Hey, Wes winging it. Perfect. Are you under the weather? Are you... No, I feel great. Feel great? Yeah. Okay, because you look really terrible. You should should go and uh, get that scene too. Um, Well, welcome both. Thank you for joining us. Uh, People wrote in earlier in the week and they lamented the fact that the Oscars took place last week. They weren't lamenting that, but they were lamenting the fact that there wasn't a podcast special. What usually happens is after the Oscars, we all stay up and we cover the Oscars. And then at six in the morning, just after the Oscars are finished, we bundle into this little booth and we ramble deliriously through the the results of the day. Now, it didn't happen this year because I didn't watch the Oscars. Helen, who's also usually a part of that, didn't. uh, She was actually on Sky TV being part of the Oscars, being part of the establishment. Um, And I was in bed. So we didn't do it. But now... Now you're getting sleep deprived, sick, and James. Yeah. So it's so it's much the same. It's pretty much the yeah. same thing. Um, let's start off with a question that's related to the Oscars. We'll discuss the Oscars um, in some detail later on. Uh, this is from Twitter at Richard Kirk, uh, who asks essentially because I didn't write it down. Uh, what's the worst? <laughs> what are the worst films to win Oscars? So this is obviously a huge category. I'm going to restrict this to Best Picture winners only. Um, I'm, I'm going to throw out. The car crash that was crash. Oh, no, I've, I've already disqualified you from saying that. You can't just say crash. It's such an easy answer. <laughs> but it's the, it's the correct one. Isn't it, is it? The it is the correct one. It is the correct one. That is the winning answer. Also controversial, though, because isn't one of the theories why that won? Because they sent out like 130,000 screeners to members of the Screen Actors Guild, so everyone had seen <laughs> that film. Uh, and presumably no others, or they wouldn't have voted for it. Uh, but there you go. It's tricky because... By and large, and I'd be lying if I said I'd seen all, uh, what is it, 88 Best Picture winners. Uh, I've seen pff, 86. Um, you know, but there's there's some films looking back at the, uh, yeah, it is, it's a good lineup. It is a good lineup. Although I do, you know, I wonder, you can't take it with you. That's a good one. Gone with the Wind, that's a good one. Rebecca, that's that's a good one. How Green Was My Valley? Maybe not. Mrs. Miniver? Maybe not. Casablanca, brilliant, going my way. I've got a soft spot for that film. Although it beat Double Indemnity I've just seen. What is going on there? Um, so it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of a tricky one. I don't think, really, you come to a, a clear stinker until maybe... The 60s. John. I don't know. I, the Greatest Show on Earth. 
That was one of the ones. That's not the 60s. Is it? When That's was the that? 50s. 50s, yeah. I, that is a powerfully bland movie. That is, a, <laughs> that is a bank holiday afternoon sort of movie. It's really not a best picture winner. And I think... Yeah. I think it, that was one of those years that it beat out something far more worthy as well. Uh, so it beat High Noon. High Noon, yeah, uh, there you it, go. It beat The uh, Quiet Man. So, yeah, fair enough. It beat one of the best John Ford Westerns of all time. So Yeah, uh, I, yeah, that's. I'm angry now. Yeah. I'm angry. See what you've done? Your rage <laughs> trans, it's transfers. Yeah. Uh, so in the 70s, Godfather Part 2, One Flew Over the Cookie's Nest, uh, Rocky. Rocky. Let's come on now. I know we all love Rocky, but Network. Taxi what's driver, the question? All the what's man. the question? The question is worst films to win an Oscar, and you cannot say. And, L- okay, I'm changing the best picture. Least yeah. deserving. All right, least deserving. It's not really deserving in that company, is it? Let's be honest. It's better than Bound for Glory, <laughs> which was also up against. <laughs> and I, you know, honestly, as much as I love All the President's Men, Network, and Taxi Driver, I think if I were. Uh, bored at home and my FIFA wasn't working uh, and I'd stick on Rocky that is again. pretty much the criteria by which the Academy judge best picture so yes you've probably nailed it just very very quickly oh yeah well here's one here's one Ordinary People 1980 uh, Robert Redford directing it's it's okay it's fine it's no The Elephant Man and it's no Raging Bull, both of which it beat to the Best Picture Oscar mm. that year. Chariots of Fire, 1981. Oh, we're on a roll now. Chariots of Fire. Rubbish. <laughs> Rubbish. And it, it beat... There, there are no chariots in it for a start. <laughs> it's like shit Ben-Hur. It does have that, that nice, you know, that theme tune, obviously, but <laughs> shit Ben-Hur. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It beat. Mm. Come on. The 80s so far is off to a shocker. <laughs> and it's a hat-trick because Gandhi uh, beat E.T. the Extraterrestrial in 1982. You know what? This is going to be controversial. I'm going to say that 1983 was pretty much a write-off. Here are the films that were nominated for Best Picture in 1983. Okay? The Big Chill. Good film. Very good film. Best Picture? Not so sure. The Dresser. Mm. The Right Stuff. Fine. Decent. Tender Mercies. Mm. And the winner, Terms of Bloody Endearment. <laughs> no, stop it. 1984, Amadeus. Are we going through every year? I'm, yeah, just, I'm getting outraged because, frankly, the 80s had a shocker. Look at this. I'm going in, I'm going in chronological order here. Out of Africa won 1985, uh, beating The Colour Purple, Pritzi's Honour and Witness. Uh, Oni with Platoon in 1986. Did uh, the 80s come close to redeeming itself? And Miss Daisy, Driving Miss Daisy, was 1989 and beat Born on the Fourth of July, Dead Poets Society, Feel the Dreams, and My Left Foot, films which are objectively <laughs> better than Driving Miss Daisy. It's, it is kind of extraordinary. Uh, it, it feels to me like maybe the uh, Oscars' reputation for getting it completely you know, uh, head over tit is... is born out of the 1980s and of course Forrest Gump beat Pulp Fiction and The Shawshank Redemption in 1994 but yeah sure yeah so I'd say the worst the worst best picture winner Chariots of Fire th- th- you're saying that's the worst Chariots that, of Fire that's the worst best picture absolutely cock off uh, however it does obviously have we should probably remember that Shakespeare in Love won best picture alright okay the one last one what did it what did it beat what did it beat it right. beat Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> it did. <laughs> a thin red line. Uh-huh. Life is Beautiful, Elizabeth. Uh-huh. 
I mean, they, this was a dare, wasn't it? Really, life is beautiful, though. Life is beautiful. That's a controversial is a one. Terrible, terrible film. Yeah, and Robert Roberto Benigni won Best Actor for no, that that year. Wasn't deserving. Just shocking. What is going on? Well, there you go, Richard Kirk. I think we've definitively answered it. It's Chariots of Fire. That's the worst film ever to win uh, a Best Picture Oscar. I know that wasn't your question, but there you go. Or even um, the correct answer, but we'll move on. What was the correct answer? Any of the others. Crash. Crash. Crash, Shakespeare in Love. I don't know, take your pick. But Crash beat. The King's Speech, for God's sake, over Inception. I like the King's Speech. Over Black Swan, over The Fighter, over Winter's Bone. No. I like Just the no. King's Speech. Yes, it's, it's wonderfully bland. Um... <laughs> I love watching a man try and articulate over the radio. It's not dissimilar to this podcast in many ways. What? 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 Um, <laughs> it's almost as if the Oscars are just a big load of nonsense, isn't it? Hey, almost. almost. And this is why we didn't let John on the uh, Oscar podcast That's immediately right. afterwards. He's just <laughs> been consumed with rage. Um, to be fair, given that John is, you know, at best 15, he, he flagged quite early when we were watching the Oscars. I was very disappointed. He, I, he, your eyes were drooping yeah. as the ceremony was basically beginning. Really? Yeah. It was it was very hard to come up with hilarious sarcastic tweets at 4 a.m. <laughs> I have to say. Yeah, 4 a.m. is usually when the uh, delirium kicks in. I have to watch myself at 4 a.m. when I'm tweeting about the Oscars. <laughs> yeah, it can't but, go uh, wrong. But we'll discuss the ceremony in a, in a few minutes once we. Um, well, okay. Yeah, so hold your horses. If you want to have a question read out in the Empire Podcast, do send them in via Twitter. We're at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast. You can send us questions via Facebook, of course, as well. We're, we're Empire Magazine. And you can email us, I believe, podcast at empireonline.com. Okay, time now for our first guest. And I haven't written anything down, so this is going to be fun. Um, he's one of the stars of one of the biggest shows on television, The Walking Dead. He is, of course, Rick Grimes, uh, although he had cleaned himself up for this interview he had shaved the beard and he was looking you know quite quite good uh, he was famous in this country of course for his work on Teachers List Life Strike Back the first season of Strike Back and of course Love Actually where he did that really creepy thing where he held up the, the, the cards to Keira Knightley while her husband Chiwetel Ejiofor was, was watching TV unaware that his best friend his best man who ruined ruined their wedding video by filming her and only her in a weird, creepy, stalkery, obsessive kind of way. Um, anyway, he's Andrew Lincoln, and he came in to talk about the uh, the new season, season six, the final part, uh, the final eight episodes of The Walking Dead are now airing on British TV. He came in to talk about that. Um, so do enjoy. This happened, this interview happened before episode two of this run. So before Rick and another major character got together if you're wondering why we're tiptoeing around that sort of stuff but he was fun. he was a lot of fun enjoy As well. yeah, of course come uh, on you're you're part of a huge culture conversation every single week with the walking dead do you keep up with it uh, so for example in the first half of this season with the whole glenn rigmarole were you yeah. keeping up to date with that were you watching the monitoring I mean, the feedback well i mean i went down to my coffee shop the day after it aired and they refused to make me a coffee they, <laughs> yeah they just said you killed glenn and i said not personally please can i have a double latte with an right. extra shot and they refused to give it to me so wow. i knew that something had happened okay um culturally um <laughs> but no i don't i mean I, I think if i did engage too much on the uh, in, in the bigger picture uh-huh. in the social media sort of realm it would terrify me into paralysis <laughs> why well, just because I think that 
there's something unique about the working environment on the show, which is like a bubble. And I think that yeah. if we're too engaged with, you know, um, what's happening out there is that I'm, we're still filming the show. So I yeah. think, I th uh, you know, you take your eye off the ball on your day job, which is to get the scene shot. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, Stephen had a very weird few weeks of sort of hiding uh, and we had to sort of escape from set with him in the back of cars. Really? Yeah. Wow. It was hilarious. Blankets over the head. Yeah, it was a bit like sort of having, you know, Paul McCartney in the back in, in sort of Beatlemania and, and yours just the roadie. <laughs> yeah, Amazing. And of course, weird. your coffee shop, you've been deprived of coffee. You can't exactly uh, say to the barista, you can't, you can't exactly go, well, listen. Okay, I need yeah, my coffee, you, so... Yeah, I'll give you a spoiler. He's all right. Yeah, just give, <laughs> just give me a double espresso. Yeah, no. Oh. Uh, there is a huge amount of secrecy, you know, around the the show, and, and it's only got more sort of intense, yeah. you know, as, as the appetite has increased. Absolutely. Uh, at this point in the UK, uh, we're just coming up to episode two. Or well, not episode two, episode two of the second half of, yeah. of this season. Um so we haven't seen this in this uh, in this country yet, but my understanding is that Rick's head falls off halfway through the episode. Now, bit of a shock. Yeah, were you the, were you the agitating force behind that? Were you the driving force behind that? Uh, the, my head falls. Your off. head falls off. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was something that we'd been sort of talking about in the writers' room for three months prior to the uh, the head fall off. Yeah. Um, we think it's a very uh, important sort of uh, commentary on perma culture <laughs> that they're sort of working on in the. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I'm just talking about the idea that you're you're considered one of the safe people on the show. You are safe. Rick is safe. Uh, well, I don't. Do you know. feel that way? I, you know, I like to think that because he's still present in the comic book and and so much of. The show is is through his eyes and ears, you know, um, and it always has been from the beginning that he is relatively safe. But I don't know. I think that the uh, certainly since, you know, since season four and five, I think that the show has really opened out into a real true ensemble, mm. you know, and I think that Scott Gimple, the showrunner, has been very, very um, adamant that, you know, we serve the story, you know, mm. serve the story. And that can mean you know, resting a few of the original cast members to service the new environment that we're experiencing or the new characters that come on board. And, mm -hmm. you know, they did it, I, I thought, brilliantly with uh, David Morrissey at the governor sort of sort of reimagining or, or going back in time to explain yeah. the governor. Um, so, yeah, I like to think that we are relatively safe, but, you know... I had dinner with John Bernthal and Sarah Wayne Callies last <laughs> night, and okay. I always thought that those guys were too talented and too brilliant uh, to ever be killed, and yeah. they got taken out. You know, yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, you know, Shane and the both Shane and Laurie in the comics um, had a big X over their heads at some point. As mm -hmm. you say, Rick is still around, but does it does it work both ways in a way? All the actors uh, are are signed on for the show. It's now running in, into season seven next year. Mm -hmm. um, is there, is there a time when some of the actors might say, 
it's time for me to move on, not for the show to move me on, but for for me to uh, to step away from. It. Is that something that you think might ever happen, or? Um, I I don't know. I think that the it's an interesting sort of. Of course, you start thinking about uh, an end game. Mm-hmm. You know, particularly when you've been playing a character for six years. But the, there's something so exciting about this back eight and where they're pushing the story and. There's almost a sort of recalibration in in episode nine, the returning episode about where Rick is and what's happened, and it's the first time he's felt hope since uh, it started. Uh, that there is a real, true potential civilization, and I also think that what happens in these next seven episodes, you'll mm-hmm. see a, a sort of opening up of the world. You know, they've been looking inwards for so long as a community. Now they start looking outwards, and the vista gets a lot bigger. You know. Yes. Which is very exciting, and also, you know, when you tr- travel home from work and you you feel satisfied with your day's work, that's a good reason to stay on a job. You yes. know? and and I'm very fortunate that the writers keep pushing uh, this character into lots of strange contortions, and you know, and that's all you can ask as as an actor is to get emotional challenges or sort of great sort of scenes to to play out and you know i think scott gimple and the, and the writers have done an amazing job with this with this show in in really pushing the envelope hmm. how, how uh abreast of developments do you like to keep i uh, i i like to know a theme for mm. a season um i don't like to know who's going okay Apart from more, well, because I just yeah. think it's bad manners. Yeah, absolutely. To be sat at a table with somebody and know that they're they may be leaving the show. I think that that's absolutely. not right. Is that something that evolved over time? Did you know that people were going before they did, and maybe think, you want to change as a result I, I, of that? I think it's something that has happened um, through experience and and mm. and and also just you know. Um, yeah, I just think it's. I don't want to know. I don't want to get ahead of the story as well. And you know, I've even stopped reading the comic books because I think we move in a different. We tonally try and keep it in the same yeah. ballpark. But we've, you know, as you'll know in this episode tonight, um, that it's a very different uh, mm-hmm. departure. Something happens that is not in the uh, the comic books between a couple of the 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 old. Uh, uh, favorites. Okay. Okay. I'm not going to go into any more detail. <laughs> uh, uh, but but I will say that um, yeah, I mean, I d- yeah, I think it's something that is very much down to the the the, the leadership. You know, it's uh, the showrunner and and doing right by the sh- what's best for the show. I Absolutely. think, and also compassionate to the people that are leaving. It's very difficult. It's one of the only jobs that I've met where people really don't want to leave. You know, generally. Sp- People are do their jobs and they're, they're quite happy to move on, you know. But this is a very unique environment and a very unique um, working environment. Great crew and uh, the benchmark that we set for each other in all departments is very, very high. We're sort mm. of working for each other to try and up the ante, and and it's quite an unusual uh, experience to be amongst that. You know, it's yeah. exciting. It's, you know, particularly after six years. How much has it changed over the years? I mean, particularly from from your point of view, do you get more input now into into what Rick does? And do you? I, I, I think they listen to me less now. <laughs> really? 
They've learned their lesson. Well, you got to you got to have a shave and a bit of a, a clean up in the most recent episode. Yeah, that, that had nothing to do with me. Um, I think uh, you know. I like to think that they will sort of listen to a little bit of you know my ideas, but not really. I mean, I, it's in such good hands, you know. That they've, um, you know, it, I. I I think that they've been magnificent. I think Scott and and all of the writers and Greg Nicotero and all, you know, it's after six years, it's become a very well-oiled machine. Just talking about again about uh, keeping up to uh, speed with the, the developments on the show, not just for Rick but for everyone else. Um, I read an interview with you recently where you said that there was something happening in this block of episodes that made you angry for the first time really in the show. You take most things in your stride, yeah. But something actually made you angry. Now I know you probably can't say what that was. I can't say what it is, but I know I can say when it happens, and it's the last episode. Mm-hmm. It's um, it made me feel. I think it was. It made me angry, and then I sort of felt sick, okay. nauseous. I felt um, frustrated, and all these kind of things. And I think that uh, it's exactly what the uh, audi- what we hope the audience will feel as well. It's uh, we've never done what. We, we we do in this in this season finale and um i think it's a brilliant episode i think it's it's got um it's very clear mm-hmm. i think some of the strongest episodes that we've ever done there's always a clear narrative a, cl- a clear drive yeah. in the episodes from start to finish everything seems to be working towards that point and um and certainly this is um this is exactly one of those episodes and greg directed it and um and I think it's what it, it gave me. I sort of woke up in the middle of the night, and it was, I couldn't get back to sleep because I was so angry and frustrated. And, <laughs> My God! Yeah, it's one of those. It um, sounds interesting. It is interesting, yeah. and it's and it's um, uh, yeah. I'm I'm really excited to see how it plays out. Okay, so without giving anything away, obviously, the next morning after this episode goes out, you go into your local coffee shop to get a coffee. What does your barista do? I think that they sort of, you know, when they're steaming the coffee, they grab my hand. <laughs> okay. And they put it under the steamer, the frother. Oh, wow. That's what they're okay. going to do. Okay, interesting. But do you still get your coffee? Yeah, I think I get it. Yeah. <laughs> you get your coffee. I think I get a coffee, yeah. <laughs> and just a couple of last things. You mentioned that you were obviously in London for a convention and you met up with uh, John Bernthal and Sarah Wayne Callies. Yeah. Uh, obviously, your old nemesis, the governor himself, David Morrissey, he's in a play at the moment over here. Mm-hmm. Have you seen it? Or can you look at that man without feeling waves of revulsion? I went and uh-huh. I heckled. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I thought I killed you. <laughs> like, no, I, I one of the first things I did, I, was, I wanted to see it and, I, you know, but you know, Dave's an old friend and a, a terrific actor, and he's doing. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it yet. You got to check it out. It's, it's got a, like a week a, and a half well, to go. But it is interesting to see how how much the the old gang on Walking Dead still seem to hang out, and still seem to meet up and socialize and stay in touch. I spoke mm. to John Bernthal recently. He said he still stays in touch with you. He still yeah, stays yeah, in yeah. touch with, say, Frank Darabont. He still meets yeah. up with the old, old gang every now and again. Yeah, man. I mean, it's it's it's. I think maybe because of the 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 conventions, but also just because it was. You know, certainly John and Sarah and Jeff DeMann and Stephen Yearn and Norman and all, and Melissa and all of these, the the original cast members, you know, it was a huge leap of faith, mm. you know, doing this show. We all sort of linked arms, jumped off a cliff and hoped that the parachutes <laughs> would open, you know. And, and I, you know, I think that there is an incredible sort of galvanizing quality in in. In just m- mortal fear, 
You know, and I do think that that's probably why there's longevity in our friendship <laughs>、yeah. because all of us were going, "Really, <laughs> is this going to work?" And um, and you do, you know, have to go through sort of scary moments when you're starting something. It's like doing a new play. It's like David must have experienced. Yeah. Obviously, you auditioned for Rick and Shane. Or did you? No,、time? you didn't. No,、okay. John did. John auditioned for Rick and Shane. That's right. Yeah, yeah. John,、okay. John was already cast. When, yeah, yeah, and I went in,、uh, flew out for my screen test. He read with me,、mm-hmm. um, and we had the scene, and we filmed in Frank Darabont's garage. And halfway through the scene, in the car, the car scene that we from the first episode, I heard this noise, and I thought it was like the engine had been turned on. And then I realized by the end of the take that I, it was John Bernthal's. Pitbull Terrier boss was asleep, <laughs> so my performance had sent his dog to sleep. That's, I, that's a very, I, very high compliment in the dog world. Well, I was going to say, yeah, it was,、uh, yeah, I still got the gig. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And the last thing is,、uh, one of your co-stars, Ross Marquand, is here、uh, in London as well.、Uh, he is a master of a thousand voices.、Mm. Are you <laughs> also a master of a thousand voices? Do you do impressions? I do an impression of Ross. Okay. That's here. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> no, I have no, not in you must the have, slightest. You must have a Michael Caine in your repertoire. Uh, uh, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't.、Uh, no, I would never dare to sort of, you know. I don't. I'm not one. I'm not one of those mimics. It's just I can do dialects. Okay, but I'm not a kind of、uh, impersonator. It's just not my sort of thing. I always. I'm one of these people that starts in. In Bengali and ends up in sort of Cardiff. That's that's I need. That's to, you. I, I, yeah, I need.、Okay. I need to do work. All right, on something. The bullet nicely dodged, Andrew Lincoln. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Did you know? Here's a here's a true fact. Yeah. But Andrew Lincoln,、okay. his real name is Andrew Clutterbuck. You've just made that up. No, I'm not making. You've that literally、up. made that. I have. I watched you make that up. <laughs> you, you watched me say it, but you watched me dredged from my memory. Olivia Wilde's real name is Olivia Cockburn. <laughs> no. Yes. No, no. You just made no, that. I、up. have not. Okay, now I'm googling it. <laughs> <laughs> We're having a Google. No、off. way. It's, it's Olivia Cockburn. It's not Olivia Cockburn. It's Olivia Cockburn. It I can't imagine why she changed it. Olivia Coburn. Isn't that how you pronounce、mm, Cockburn? Fairly sure it's Cockburn. I have a friend whose surname is Coburn. Frankly, if your surname was Cockburn, you'd tell people it's pronounced Coburn. <laughs> James Coburn, incidentally, actually James Cockburn. No, I made that up. You're right. Yes. Her parents, Andrew Coburn and Leslie Coburn, Cockburn,、um, yes, Cockburn, gave birth. Well, one of them did to Olivia Jane Coburn on March 10th, 1984. Andrew Lincoln's real name is Andrew Clutterbuck. I can confirm. I've just googled. Really, Clutterbuck. Clutterbuck. Andrew James Clutterbuck. What a name! Yeah. What yeah. a name!、Uh, so that was Andrew Clutterbuck.、Uh, <laughs> lovely, lovely guy. It is. I do wonder why he changed his name. I can guess why he changed his name, but yeah, yeah but yeah. it's it's、uh, still. It would be nice to have a name that distinctive. Man up! Arnold Schwarzenegger didn't change his name, did he? You know, it's his first film. Arnold Schwarzenegger was credited as Arnold Strong. Yes, he was. Okay, in New York. Yeah. He was also overdubbed,、um, yeah. Because you know we're a bit racist that way. Maybe But, Andrew、um, Lincoln would change change his name to like you know Andrew, good at acting or something. An empire, <laughs> an empire interviewer who shall remain nameless、uh, once interviewed、uh, Hillary Hillary Swank, and as a warm up question said, "Did you know that in England your name is quite rude?" And she went, "What, Hillary?" <laughs> maybe, maybe she should change her name to、uh, Hillary's good at acting as well. Don't, don't you think, John? I mean, honestly, can you imagine if a guy walks in for an audition, go and、uh, your name 
It's uh, Andrew. Andrew, good at acting. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Arnold changes his name to something he's he is. You know, he's strong. Yeah. So Andrew, good at. I don't know. I'm just you know just saying. I'm I'm losing the plot. Uh, right. Uh, let's talk about some news. Things have happened. Oscars. Oscars happened. So I heard. They definitely happened. Um, this is like an Oscar, a sleep-deprived Oscar podcast, but shorter, I guess, which is probably good. So what do we uh, think overall of the winners, first of all, and then we'll talk about the ceremony itself? I think the entire thing from start to finish was wildly unsurprising, uh, it, with the sole exception of Best Song, which kind of floored me. Uh, but everything else pretty, pretty much went as expected, that's, I would say. Let's just talk about that. Yeah. Sam Smith. Yeah. Has an Oscar. Yeah. For that yeah. song. Writings on the Wall. Which, let's be fair, is not the worst Bond theme. That's still either all time high or it's Die all, Another Day. It's all time high. God, it's up there, though, isn't it? It's, it's really up, up there. It's, it is up there. But it's, or down there, it, as it were. It, it was, I mean, everyone moaned about it when it came out, everyone hated it in the film. It got nominated for Best Song and then won after we'd all sat and watched Lady Gaga's performance of Till It Happens to You, which was incredibly powerful on the night, you know, yeah. when she had all the survivors out there. And it just seemed to rub salt into the wound. It was it was quite um Yeah. You were just you were just looking at it. Sam it has an Oscar. <laughs> yeah. What's yeah. good though is is, you know, watching this um sort of schadenfraude of nonsense that came after, you know, when he claimed to be like the the first oh gay God. winner, uh, you know, lots of other other openly gay Oscar winners have since come out to yeah. say, uh, actually, yeah. that that was that was quite astonishing actually watching. And to be fair, he's not a, a film guy; he doesn't know his onions it, the way that we podcasters do. Uh, but it's it, it was interesting to watch him go, ah, yes, I think I may be the first openly gay man to win an Oscar. And then and someone goes, actually, no, you're not. And he goes, oh, well, in that case, I'm the second openly gay man to win an Oscar. And go, no, no, no. And then, of course, the PSD resistance came when someone said, um, actually, no, 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 there was, you know, a guy called Howard Ashman who won uh, a couple of Oscars, worked on Likes of Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and uh, worked in the music for that, along with Alan Menken. And he was openly gay. And then Sam Smith went, ooh, I should know him. We should date. And, of course, he died in 1991. Uh, so that was the that was the real kind of, uh, you should stop talking now, Sam Smith, kind of thing. Uh, what do we think of the rest of the, uh, the the ceremony? Well, yeah, as James says, that that was probably one of the only big surprises. I Poss- think possibly Rylance as well. Rylance, maybe. I think it's a shame Emma's not here, really, because she is the Oscar guru, I suppose. Yeah, she's the groundhog. And she, on the night, was saying there was no great surprises. Uh, if you looked at all, all the other previous award shows were going... All of the indicators seem to suggest that everything uh, went as predicted. Ex Machina uh, winning Best Visual Effects. That was a bit of a surprise. Yeah, yeah. And a, but a pleasant one. V- pleasant very one. pleasant. Mm. Very happy to see that. It's, it's actually really funny doing the Oscars with Emma because, as I'm sure you've explored before on the podcast, she's, she's like some weird idiot savant when it comes to award <laughs> ceremonies. Like she crunches the numbers from all the others and knows. She, she reads the Oscar code between the words. And so every time something happens, she's just sitting there just chuckling to a second. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know, Spotlight wins Best Picture. <laughs> it's like she's the only one in on this game. Well, I saw yeah. that coming. She couldn't be here today. We, uh, we wanted her on the podcast. Yeah, I thought Stallone not winning Best Supporting Actor was a surprise. Uh, I know Mark Rylance won the BAFTA. And Stallone wasn't even nominated, but he did win Golden Globes. He was winning an awful lot of other awards. And I thought there was a sentimental uh, groundswell behind him uh, to win that award. Also, I think uh, he was the 
best actor in that category, the best performance in that category, not the best actor. If you had an act off with Rylance and, and, <laughs> and Sly Stallone, Rylance would probably win nine times out of ten. Uh, but for me, uh, you know, though he was very good in Bridge of Spies, his performance wasn't so much Mark Rylance, more Mark Ryglance. Am I am I right? Really. Am I right in thinking? Because that's what he did a lot. Um, he glanced wryly at things. No, no one's high five no. on that one. Anyway, um, so, yeah, but I thought it was uh, yeah, very very good performance. But for me, and I've I've been firmly in this alone camp since even before I saw the film. But um, I love I love Creed, and uh, I thought he was fantastic as Rocky in that movie, and uh, should have got something. God damn it! Although my my meltdown the next morning was insignificant compared to Frank Stallone's. <laughs> uh, did you see that? What yeah. he what he did? He just went nuts. Uh, <laughs> Having to go up Mark Rylance, Mark who? Uh, a yelling abuse of people on Twitter if they dared to disagree with him, including Matt Lucas. Uh, yeah, some really interesting stuff. He had to be basically talked off a roof. Um, and But um, put, put the phone down, Frank. Just one more tweet. No. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a tricky one. Uh, and I was disappointed that George Miller didn't win Best Director. I think I think he was definitely the most deserving out of yeah, that category. But he was also never going to win. No, so. it was nice to see Mad Max clean up in the the technicals. Yeah, so. yeah, it did pretty well. Yeah, I do wonder what would have happened if they'd really emphasized how difficult it was to make Mad Max. You know, oh, yeah. it was really hot. Mm, oh, yeah. sand got everywhere. It did. Oh, it was yeah. terrible. All the chafing. Oh, a lot well, of chafing. The factor fifty was very gloomy. Yeah, oh, it was horrible. Horrible. <laughs> At one point, I saw a snake. Ooh. But I think that's that's that is part of the Oscars, isn't it? Is about having that narrative, and maybe Mad Max didn't have the same narrative that, that the Revenant did. You know, of having. I, mean, I like the Revenant. I thought it had um, it had fewer cars with spikes on them, and really that was the biggest problem I had with it. <laughs> <laughs> fewer it, it, what it really lacked The Revenant and in fact I think most of the Oscar nominated movies lacked maybe with the exception of one was a man playing a flame throwing guitar while wearing his dead mother's face <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean it's, yeah. You, you just you see you know old, uh, they're, they're shooting by natural light they're looking for the exact moment and George Miller's going that car has he got enough spikes on it are there enough skulls right action Where's he from? <laughs> <laughs> Could have been Wales. It was hard to say. It veered. It veered slightly. Sounded, I don't know, South African? Yeah. Sorry, yeah. South African by way of... Diplomatic immunity. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that's... Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it, well done for coming in and at least having to go with the accent. Yeah. That, uh, that is good. You I'm, mix. I'm you not... mix. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell's going on? I don't know. I've, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to try we've to talk, do the accent. We've talked but, a lot about... Yeah. Um, in fact, this... And I'm going to digress slightly here. A thing came oh, into the office okay. last week. And yeah. we talked about bringing this on the podcast and then realised it would be a horrendous mistake. And it is a quiz. What is the name of this, this game? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> what, we're not no, going to play the game. No. What is the name this of the is game? the worst thing ever. It's called Accentuate. It's called Accentuate. And some uh, a PR sent it to me. The game is essentially, you have 90, I think, 90 film quotes. Pretty obscure ones, by and large, I'm yeah. glad. I mean, Very just, random. Yeah, random stuff. Uh, cocktail, things like that. And then, so the idea of the game is that you read out a, the quote. You pick a, the card, you read out the quote, and then you pick out another card from another selection of 90 cards, and on that card is written an accent. Anything from from Scouse mm. to Japanese and and everything in between. And the idea is that the, the people are limited to guess what accent you're trying to do. Now, this is fraught 
with danger this game we yes. tried to play it in the office and I, I got really deeply uncomfortable very very quickly but and was, we stopped playing we, you know, it we started quite well because it'd be like right Geordie right, give that a go Scouse give that a go well, then, uh, look I'm doing the Geordie right no, now no, no no I said Geordie oh not, Geordie alright not, oh, not Indian <laughs> uh, yeah it, it, this is the game where, where, where you know regional accents you get with and then you'll draw one that says Jamaican and you feel like you're on the cusp of perpetuating some horrible racist gaff. Yeah, and then there's really random ones like Cypriot now in the nicest way I'm sure there's a very distinctive Cypriot accent but I'm Fucked if I can tell you what it is. <laughs> it does strike me as a sort of game like Bernard Manning would enjoy. You it's, know. It was so weird. Or I, even I, Mike Manning. I, yeah, Mike Manning. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to him. We'll get to him in a second. Uh, I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. But we don't have much time. So the Oscars. Yes. Um, the show. The ceremony, Chris Rock. The, the ceremony itself, Chris Rock. Funny. I thought, I thought he was really, really good. I thought, I mean, it's it, really, the Academy kind of lucked out, really, that they had him as a host. Not not because he's black, but because he's a stand-up comedian whose routine is basically about being black. That's his thing. That's what he does. And he executed it to perfection. I thought his uh, opening monologue was superb. It covered all the issues brilliantly. And also, I think it shows that it helps an opening monologue if it has a theme, if it has a structure to base its material around. Oh, rather than, well, I see I see Jack Nicholson's yeah, here this year. Literally, that they're sort of meandering about nothing ones, just, I think, always bomb. And his was really tight, very precise. Also, he pushed it really close to the edge in places. Mm. Uh, and I think it really helped the tone of the whole thing. You know, the little <laughs> montages with clips from all the, the nominees with Goldberg and, and whatnot cut into them. Uh, very funny. Liked him all the way through. The, the only bit where it fell on its face was um, uh, a couple of things. When he had his, his Asian gag, when he brought out the three accountant kids, that yeah. was yeah. awkward. Uh, yeah. And then and then that really, really awkward when Stacey Dash comes out and everyone just was silent and then kind of, I don't know, were they booing? They were not happy. It didn't go down well. It was it was bizarre. And I think I think the Oscars has a quota of baffling moments. Yeah. Like every year there's at least two or three sort of moments where you just go, <laughs> so a, a, a decent ceremony and we were happy with Spotlight winning yeah uh, I, th- I mean obviously honestly, I would have liked Mad Max Fury Road yeah win, but but it was never going to win and I liked I'm, Spotlight I, I think it's it's um it's a very understated movie uh, it's it's not as showy as some of the other nominees yeah. but I but I was happy that it won over The Revenant to be honest I, I thought it was a worthy of winner mm. honestly I, I really love The Big Short and I'm I'm very pleased that it won the, the screenwriting Oscar Mm. Uh, but uh, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more love for that. But yes, Mad Max would have been my mm. pick for a for picture. Absolutely, uh, yeah, very very happy for Adam McKay indeed. Um, so let's move on to some uh, other news fairly quickly. Uh, so there's a Baywatch movie which is happening right now, and it's an R-rated comedy that this week The Rock, who is starring in it alongside Zac Efron, described as Anchorman meets the Avengers. And that has me all kinds of terrified, I'll be completely honest with you. But um, but fingers crossed, hopefully it's going to be all right. And this week, The Hoff has officially joined the cast. Whether it's an extended cameo or just a blink and you'll miss him. But what, what, do, we, what do we reckon about this one? I am powerfully indifferent. <laughs> uh, I, not, not because it's going to be bad, although it's going to be bad. Uh, but mainly because I've, I've literally, literally never watched a single episode of Baywatch. Like, not one ever. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really invested in it. That's what I do love. How the did Hoff. you get your lifeguard kicks? If you weren't watching that, what were you watching? You were probably watching some sort of sci-fi yeah, lifeguard. I was type watching thing. Star Trek. Let's be honest. Yeah, Space Beach. Yeah. Well, that's a good idea. <laughs> um, also, uh, out this week, I think probably the most talked about thing of the week, apart from the Oscars, is the Ghostbusters trailer, which hit mm. yesterday. And I was always tough to talk about a trailer on the podcast, but I'm sure by now you have seen the Ghostbusters trailer. If you haven't. Uh, go to um, your your tube 
I believe that's what it's called, and uh, and check it out. What do we make of it? Because the internet kind of split into three parts yesterday. I think there were the people who went, this looks great, I'm on board, looks like a lot of fun. Then there were people who went, um, the usual frothy, you know, rancid, horrible mm. idiots who are just cannot uh, believe that they've made a film with women in it. Uh, so they were angry about that. And then there were the other, the other faction, I saw a lot of this yesterday, were people going, um... Trailer is not that good. Yes. Am I allowed to say that? I saw an awful lot of that. Am I allowed not to like this? Well, of course you are, as long as you're not being a massive sexist. But this is the thing. I really, really want... I will say wanted. I still want this film to be good, mainly because the caveman contingent, these awful misogynists, just, they oh, can just all just, just die. There are many reasons uh, not to be happy the Ghostbusters is being rebooted, but that it's got women in it is not one of them. Um, I... Don't, I <laughs> You know, I had an argument yesterday. Well, no, it wasn't an argument. It was a disagreement with someone who basically said, I've never found any of the women in that movie funny. And I just find that very hard to believe. So do I. You know, Kate McKinnon in the trailer alone made me laugh two or three times. I agree. I don't think the trailer is as funny as it could be. And I'm hoping the movie will be a lot funnier. But Kristen Wiig doesn't make you laugh. Liz McCarthy doesn't make a laugh. Leslie Jones, I don't know Leslie Jones that much, but what I've seen of her in SNL, very funny. Yeah. Okay, okay. But hey, okay. To be honest, I felt it was not a particularly well-made trailer. No. But uh, it could be a good film. I think it still has potential. I, I yeah. still have a lot of faith just because Paul Feig, he's he's made some very good films. Bridesmaids is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, spy, for me it's all Spy. Spy is fantastic. Spy. <clears throat> it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, there's a part of me that it's the PG-13-ness of it bothers me and perhaps it's because I'm massively pure art but for me, in a Paul Feig movie, swearing is both big and clever and I just, I really like his edginess. I, I love that part of his, uh, of the humour that he, he sort of brings out and I don't know, there were... The problem with this trailer is it felt a little bit derivative. Like the section uh, when she encounters the, what is it, is it class five, I want to say? Roaming Vapor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it felt like the librarian sequence, but not as good. You know, and a lot of it just, and the possession didn't really land for me. None of the jokes really landed. But again, it could just be a poorly made trailer. I'm certainly not writing off the film at this stage. Uh, but no, it didn't set my world on fire. I did quite like the musical cues. They gave me tingles. Echoing back to the original. It's interesting when we don't have a lot of time to really talk about Ghostbusters in general. I love Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. It is obviously a, a seminal film for me in many, many ways. I grew up watching Ghostbusters. But here's the thing about Ghostbusters, and this may be a controversial viewpoint. It's not that funny. It, I, uh, as in, and as in, it's filled with, it makes you smile a lot. But how many belly laughs are in Ghostbusters? How many absolute clutch my sides Roll around, ruffle. Let me just take the ruffle copter up to the roof and, and have a lol. How many of those moments are in that film? It's it's got great um, spirit. It's got moxie. It's got great special effects. It's scary and funny. But as an out and out comedy, 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 I don't think it's as hilarious as say I don't know. It's comparing oranges to apples, but a naked gun or something like that. It's not consistently hilarious in that way. It's a very, very different thing. So I'll be interested to see what the vibe is of this mm-hmm. film, if they're going to go for the same thing, because Paul Fig is a, a joke meister. He, he is, is someone who, you know, pretty much he bombards you with jokes. And so I'll be intrigued to see what happens with that one. I actually think this has a shot at being as funny, if not funnier than the original, but, but I, because I don't think the original is. People are going to, I'm not dissing Ghostbusters. I love Ghostbusters. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying I don't think it is hilarious from start to finish 
There we go. Right. Phew. <laughs> um, what else? Should we talk about anything Star else? Star Trek. Star Trek? Star Trek. Uh, obviously, I want to get Star Trek in here. Um, the new Star Trek series is something I'm clearly very excited about. Uh, but so news broke that Rod Roddenberry, or Eugene, as is his actual name, uh, is going to be exec producing. This is Gene Roddenberry's son. Uh, and I imagine they put this out there to try and allay fans' fears, to make them think that this this is going to be true to the Star Trek legacy, which is a weird thing to do, given that Rod Roddenberry famously doesn't like Star Trek. Um, he never he never watched it, he never saw it, he didn't have any interest in it. Uh, he worked, I think, as a production assistant on Next Generation, but he, he famously didn't get it. Right. Uh, and then after his father died, I think he started to discover Star Trek. He started to watch it, and I think he did that... Uh, he did that documentary, uh, Trek Nation, where he was sort of connecting with his father through the legacy of Star Trek. So I think he's redeemed himself in, in Trekkie's eyes somewhat. But, yeah, it's a curious thing to champion. Uh, weirdly, I think almost um, Brian Fuller's a better, uh, a better example of, you know, a blue blood Trekker, because, I mean, he wrote, what, 30 episodes of Voyager? He wrote a few Deep Space mm-hmm. Nines. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, he's awesome. And Alex Kirsman also and they, involved. Did you see the news? Uh, it was about a week ago now. Mm. They had uh, Nicholas Meyer is on board. Mm, yes, indeed, another exec producer who many people call the the savior of Star Trek. He wrote Wrath of Khan, and it feels a little bit like they're trying to stack the deck ahead of ha- ahead of time. You know, we're going to make this a success just by having as many successful people or relevant people involved in this as possible. Um, you know what? I'm you know Enterprise is rubbish. I think we can all agree this, but I'm I'm very very excited about Star Trek coming back to television. I love Deep Space Nine. Yeah, uh, Next Generation is amazing. Voyager's got some good episodes. Um, you know, yeah, we shall see. Nicholas Meyer being on board is a, is a, a big thing for me. So mm. fingers crossed. We shall see what happens. It, it, you know, I'm not sure what's happening with that show in terms of where it's going to be screened over here. Not it's and, and in fact, it's a little unclear in the states. I think the it's part of this CBS, I think it's called CBS Early Access or something. You have mm. to subscribe mm. to uh, to get to this this uh, to watch these episodes. The first one will be free to air, and then after that, you have to basically pay for your Star Trek fix. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see how that one works. And also who it brings in, because Star Trek's broadened itself massively through the recent films, uh, which Rod mm. Roddenberry is a big fan of. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see where they Just go. Just hire I'm the f- guy because he's called Rod Roddenberry. Yeah. <laughs> He should change his name to Rod Good at Acting. <laughs> <laughs> Even though he's a producer. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Rod Good at Producing, then. I don't know. It's flexible. It's yeah. flexible. It's a movable feast. Let's move on uh, to our final guests this week. Uh, again, I've nothing written down, but if you can't introduce Joel and Ethan Cohen on your podcast, then something is frankly wrong. They are the directors, writers, and producers of some of the best movies of the last 30 years from Blood Simple, Raisin Arizona, Fargo, The Hudsucker Proxy, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, A Simple Man, uh, Old Country for Old Men. What, what am I missing now? The Big Lebowski. The Big Lebowski. The Big Lebowski. Amazing. Burn out the reading. I've got a soft spot for that one. And they're back with the latest in their series of films, which George Clooney plays an idiot. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's it's called Hell Caesar, set in Hollywood in the 1950s. Uh, we sent along our very own, I was going to say idiot, but I would be polite and nice, um, and say Phil Dissemlian went along to speak to Joel and Ethan Cohen, the Cohen brothers, on this podcast. Amazing. Welcome to the Empire Podcast, Joel and Ethan Cohen. Uh, it's a real pleasure. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Um, is it Joel and Ethan Cohen or Ethan and Joel Cohen? Do you guys have any preference on... We'll answer to either mix it both up? in whatever order, uh, <laughs> whatever. Um, well, it's a joy to have you on the podcast and uh, here to talk about Hail Caesar. This is a project that's been 
germinating for, I believe, just over a decade. And George Clooney was the first to announce it. And then I think continue to announce it at, uh, at sort of sporadic uh, moments. Now you've made it. Are you worried that you're encouraging George in this area? <laughs> uh, well, we always worry about that. Yeah. Um, in indulging a child, are you encouraging the future behavior? Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I, yes, it's an idea we pitched to George many years ago. And for his own inscrutable reasons, he kept announcing as his next movie. And finally, we decided to call his bluff by actually writing the script and asking him to do it. Did you think about writing the script and not ask him to do it as some form of cosmic punishment? Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know that anyone could have uh, stepped into that part and uh, been yeah. as funny in it and convincing a knucklehead <laughs> as George can be. He's fabulous in this role um, as um, not terribly convincing. I mean, he has his moments, but he's not a... He's not a screen great, you'd probably argue. And, and you've also got Alden Ehrenreich, who steals a lot of the scenes he's in as well, um, as Hobie Doyle, um, who's a kind of a cowboy out of water, should we say, in a, in a kind of... Yes, he's a cowboy, cowboy out, out of water. Cowboy out of water, yes. Um, I, I just wondered if there's an art to directing bad acting. Well, yeah. <laughs> that was Alden. He, he certainly understood what we were after, what, the, what, what was required, and... Yeah, no, he was great. We didn't have to do a lot of directing with Holden yeah, or with any of the actors, really. They all kind of... It's you know. it's interesting, though. That scene where he has to act badly is the scene that he came in and auditioned, all right. as did everyone else. It's the scene that we saw for that part. It's the scene that we asked actors who were coming in to read for that part to uh, do for us. Because it's clearly, you know, the, the, it's very, very difficult to do well. Yeah. Um, you have to be very, very good. Yeah, it's just like it's, it, you have to be a very good actor to play a dope, as, as Clooney does. You have to be a very, very good actor to play a bad actor. Yes. Uh, or an actor who's not getting it, um, a, as Alden does. And so we knew that was essentially going to separate them in from the boys, so to speak, in terms of who could do that scene and who couldn't. Alden came in and he auditioned that scene. It was fantastic. I mean, we cast him right off that audition. Yeah, he was. he's fabulous in that scene. I mean, it's February. The film will be out at the beginning of March, and that's already one of my very favorite scenes. I think at the end of the year, I'll look back, and that scene is hilarious, and it, it rightly kind of um, temples one of the trailers. Uh, it is actually a very difficult line to say, I think, the twer that it would, twer that it twer so simple. Would that it twer so simple. Easy for Rafe to say, apparently. Rafe, Rafe can spit it out, man. Ra yes. <laughs> Rafe, is Rafe Fiennes is the director of the movie within the movie that this cowboy star played by Alden Ehrenreich has been drafted to perform in. That's right. Um, Merrily We Dance, it's called, isn't it? Right. I wondered, there's films within films. There's films within the film. There's, there's a number of them. Um, your production designer, uh, Jess Gonshaw, had to design, I think, six different sound stages and sets to work on. Yes. Um, did you ever just think, oh, my God, you know, you've got two lots of clapperboards. You've got two lots of camera crews. You've got yeah. two lots of everything. Yeah. Do you ever think that, they, you know, can we just shed both of them and go home for a cup of tea or something? It's just, yeah. Yes, no, we, yeah. it's weird. Yeah, no, it's true. Two different clapperboards, not just the set. You have to do <laughs> It's funny. Jess was a pig in the proverbial. Uh, Jess yes. really enjoyed himself. He was... Uh, and he's great. All the movies look within the movie look fantastic, as does the overall one. 
But Jess said at the end of the movie, he said, what am I going to do now? I've done everything. <laughs> um, and it's a weird design, not a problem, but uh, exercise. You have to design the sets for each of these movies and then see everything also outside of that frame on the soundstage or whatever, but that looks period appropriate. You're outside of the world of that movie, but you're still in 1951 Hollywood it's all uh, that. That's actually you have like three, effectively three different, well, two crews, yeah, and yeah. three lots of different people in right, different costumes. Right. There's a picture crew, which very occasionally was real crew dressed in period appropriate wardrobe because they had to operate real working lights sometimes or wow. whatever a piece of equipment. So, yeah, it's uh, it's all very uh, dizzying. I wonder which of these movies would have been the most fun to make as a feature length, whether it be the Esther Williams. With Scotty Hansen. Definitely not, not, the <laughs> not to make. Hopefully to watch. Not to make. No. Uh, maybe the singing cowboy, I think. Yeah. No, the Esther Williams movie is quite difficult. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that you've said about this film that was really interesting is that you, you go back and look at how they made those Esther Williams movies. And, and there's no record of it. And the people that made them have kind of have kind of passed. So you have to learn, I guess, for yourselves and try and imitate that. Um, and it's so many different ways and with so many different details. I mean, the the problems were what opacity should the water be yeah. so that you can see how, how do you light them from above and still sort of minimize reflections in the water uh how do you and from a swimming point of view you know the synchronized swimmers we used were fantastic swimmers but they were the kind of synchronized swimming they do now is very very different from what they were doing then completely different thing and they had to learn this sort of new idiom and it's weird you look at the old movies for cues or for information on how they did or what they were doing and you find yourself looking at bizarre things like you look at a esther williams water ballet and you're looking not at the swimmers but at the water to see did they dive <laughs> tint the water how much how as joel said how opaque is it it's just weird the the things you find yourself looking at we ended up doing different things for the the underwater thing was obviously different than the uh, you know bird's eye view above water, but it, they're all weird problems that nobody's thought about in 50 years. A question, um, I guess, on behalf of people that, that aren't as familiar with the movies that you've that you've um, I don't pastiche sounds like a, the wrong word almost, but the, the movies that you've referenced here. Um, when I watched the Hudsucker Proxy, it really threw me into watching wanting to watch Preston Sturges movies, Sullivan's Travels, um, His Girl Friday, those sorts of films. Uh, what movies would you recommend for people when they've seen Hail Caesar to go and pick up and have a look at that they may not have come across? Not most of the ones we referenced. <laughs> they made a lot of, well, I'm thinking about the Bible movies, the big sort of bloated uh, sandal epics, most of which you try to, you might remember them fondly, but you try to look at them now and they're pretty boring. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, they're a tough slog to look at, you know, try and watch The Robe or Quo Vadis all the way through now. Even um, the Esther Williams movies, they're fantastic in parts, but watching a whole feature can be... <laughs> a bit of a slog also the really you know brilliant brilliant parts of those movies were the sort of choreographed swimming parts that were largely done by busby berkeley who was a genius that you know the the rest of the movie is you wouldn't put in the same category there they were kind of very standard studio programmers with uh um, almost like television shows a little bit uh you know in terms of how the uh, how the, what the stories were like and what the rest of the movies were like. Um, but 
you know, there was. <laughs> so yes, I would I would agree with Ethan. I don't think there's a I don't think you want to go and visit. I mean, quite honestly, that's true of a lot of the sort of tap dancing sort of really really you find brilliant brilliant sort of tap dancing stuff in the context of of sometimes very mediocre movies too. Yes. Although with those musicals, often those movies as a whole were a lot better. Um, those kind of musicals. So um, I don't know. It's uh, uh, we're not recommending. Uh, I don't think I recommend anything in particular here that was sort of we were directly referencing. Um, I've got to ask about Dolph Lundgren's presence in this film. Um, I'd ask how that happened. I'm sure that that's just one of the sort of happenstances of casting. But I wonder if there's if you have a um, a relationship with Dolph Lundgren's movies or a favorite of Dolph Lundgren's movies that might have steered you in that direction. Uh, yeah, he was really great. I mean, to come in and do that for us, because essentially what we wanted was that sort of heroic Nordic Russian kind of <laughs> profile, you know, um, for the sub commander. Um, I mean, I think Dolph kind of came in and did it just as a lark because, yeah, you know, um, uh, no, he's great. I uh, um, uh, I think he also he, he gave us copies of his like his workout book too. Yeah, <laughs> which was you know. Here's famous. a weird production problem that nobody. So this is the kind of thing that you only you are on the set and you go, oh man, nobody thought about this and why would they? Dolph is so broad-shouldered he barely fit through the hatch of the sub. <laughs> <laughs> thought, wow, we should have me- we should have measured him before we made this set. Yeah, he's a big guy. I could almost see Dolph as one of uh, potentially one of the anarchists um, in 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 Lebowski. Um, uh, I, I wondered what was more fun for you to write, the anarchists or the future? The future, oh, uh, uh, yeah, I can't remember. Right, the the nihilists, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. Two schools of thought there. We did. We wrote more lines for the communists. They're actually more verbal than yes, any of the nihilists were. Here. Um, it, it, it's, it seems like kind of it's a brilliant joke. The idea that there was actually this, you know, McCarthy was right. Yeah, McCarthy. Was McCarthy right. all along, he was right. Everyone yeah. else was wrong. Yeah. And having yeah. seen, I mean, I swear, the film I saw before I watched Hell Caesar was Trumbo. Um, I know that you've been asked about the relationship, <laughs> but it's just a strange quirk of timing, I guess. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, it did amuse us, the concept that McCarthy was right. Um, They were trying to get communist content into motion (laughs) pictures. Um, And there were Soviet submarines off the coast of California. Actually, I don't think even that, the paranoia did not rise to that height, even at the time. Is this the longest sort of germinating movie that you you guys have had in your minds? Well, maybe. Uh, And just in this, you know, it wasn't... I, I don't think you can actually say it germinated all that time. In George's mind. I think mind. we had the idea. We kind of thought about it for a little while. It didn't get very far. There was a, a, I mean, we weren't writing on it at all, really. Maybe a scene or two. I think we did write a scene or two, like the very did beginning we? of it. I can't you know? remember. And, uh-huh. then, and then put it aside and, you know, literally like 12, 13, 14 years later, we 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 said oh hell let's let's try and write this thing and see where it goes um but on the other hand there are other things that we've done where we have you know wrote we've written some of it and then put it away for a while maybe a month maybe you know 
six months and then come back to it and finished it. That's that's happened on a couple of things. Yeah, I remember. So. I, oh, brother, where are thou? We wrote the very beginning of the scene through where it ended up being George Clooney, the convict on the chain gang, is talking to the hobos in the freight car and gets yanked out of the freight car, and, uh, <laughs> and then we stopped there for a few years. Yes, uh, and also Fargo, we wrote maybe forty pages of and couldn't figure out where it went from there and uh, wherever it was that we stopped. It was a oh, Carl is banging yes. the escort. Yes, that's uh, right. Steve Buscemi was having <laughs> sex with the uh, with a prostitute, and then we didn't. Oh, well, where does it go from here? And we couldn't figure it out, so we set it aside for a couple of years. And the last line of the script on the, our little computer for several years was Carl is banging it was the escort. Chef's <laughs> Carl, Carl is, is banging, banging the, the escort. escort. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was just that was it. That was the end of the road. We didn't know where else where it was going. And yeah. once every few months, we'd fire up the computer and look at that line. Carl is banging <laughs> the escort, and I used to go, no, 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 shut it off. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I, I mean that's and um, clearly you yeah. know, it goes the Shep comes in and beats him. clearly that's what has to happen next and, but and we couldn't it see this really obtuse actually retrospectively yeah. I did not we, see that yeah <laughs> I, I mean I asked partly in the context of you, 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 you when you promote your movie people want to know what you've got next what you've got in mind um, you can't at this point usually answer that or begin to answer that um, but not you, usually sometimes we know Sometimes we have one finished that we know we're going to do next. But no, correct. Yes, not usually. Today, at this point, at this juncture. Yeah, no. Not a... I don't know. Okay. Well, you, you guys have done um, some script work, obviously, in recent, yes. in recent years. Unbroken mm-hmm. um, and Bridge of Spies. And it's sort of provoked this this kind of subsidiary game, which is, you know, f- trying to find the Cohen-ness in, in, in those films, I suppose. Well, that would be, that's a difficult exercise. Because, because the, yeah, you know, you work on something for hire and your work is being mushed in with other people's work and, with, and it's all at the mandate of a director who has certain needs, so it's not your own inclination you're following, but the, the director's, which is legitimate, that's what the job is, that's what you want to do. So that all it becomes a strange, good luck with that exercise. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you, you, I guess you've sort of failed if people can spot that stuff. Yes. Um, right. But but Bridge of Spies did at least give you the opportunity to do... And that was actually quite a lot of fun for us because, in, in, you know, we've known Stephen for many years and um, are big admirers of his work. Uh, um, and the opportunity to sort of sit down and uh, work with him on a script was, was uh, a real pleasure. Um, we had a lot of fun doing that movie. Have you got uh, discussed the idea of doing more with him? Actually, oh, we would yeah. love to. If he, you know, that as I say, it was a very congenial and pleasurable sort of uh, number of weeks we spent, you know, working with him on that movie. We, yeah, no, definitely would love to. Something that's been in the ether uh, for a long, long time is the idea of a, another Lebowski movie um, or. A Jesus spin-off movie. Those two things yeah, keep t- coming back. Tatura wants he keeps urging us to do the Jesus spin-off, the uh, his character. Yeah, uh-huh. But, but is, uh-huh. Now he's seen Clooney pull it off with this movie. Presumably he's going to get encouragement to continue <laughs> announcing it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I you know uh, it's... Uh, you know, people have been asking us about a sequel to The Big Lebowski for years. I don't think it's going to happen. We, you know, we have talked about doing a sequel to Barton Fink, which 
just really in response to the enormous sort of popular demand for one. Um, <laughs> but uh, don't want to do it until Totoro. It would be old Fink. Um, we don't actually want to do it until Totoro is uh, old enough in reality to sort of play old Fink. He's getting there. How old would he need to be for that? Um, you know, he's, he's almost yeah, there. He needs to be like, a few years older. I think it would be it would be 60. the character during the Summer of Love in San Francisco. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, teaching at Berkeley or something. You know, he's kind of a an old lefty, but an ideologue who's become old and cynical and embittered. Mm-hmm. Why that particular movie? Why that particular character? You have so many. We liked his hair. <laughs> well, the, yes, and I think you know it'd be interesting to see what happened to that character. I'm not really that interested in what happens to, you know, the dude or Walter. I think they have to stay in their particular moment, but. Barton Fink, for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think a lot of people would love to see that. Um, Before, not sure about that. Uh, No, I think they would. Yes, we've already determined in our minds that John Goodman comes back as a kind of, uh, I don't know, what do you call it? Not a Yoda-like creature. Who's the guy in Star Wars who comes back as a voice, like conscience voice? Uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah, right. I tune with... uh, Modern popular culture. <laughs> Ethan, which screening of The Force Awakens did you go to? <laughs> we have, we have the upcoming not, screening. Neither of us have seen that movie yet. Not Actually, not because we don't want to. I very much want to. I just, uh, I just, you know, that's how pathetic I am. I haven't gotten out to see Star Wars yet. I'm going to be the last person on the planet. Um, that's possibly true <laughs> as things stand right now. But um, I have to ask you, Josh Brolin, we spoke to, and he said that your favorite filmmaker, hands down, was Adrian, Adrian Lin. Um, uh-huh. Can you confirm or deny that fact? No, that's true. Okay. And so your Desert Island Adrian Lin movie would be? Uh, the one with Diane and uh, uh, who's the guy? Uh, uh, you mean, uh, yes. But there's so many. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I just think he's. I, I, here we are again. You know, this is like it's, it's a horrible sort of, uh, you know, sign of old age that we can't remember our, the name of our favorite movie. Yeah. But um, now it's we can't remember the names of our friends who were in our favorite movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Would it be Flashdance, <laughs> Fatal Attraction? No, no, not Fatal Attraction. Although that was quite good. Okay. Yes. What's now, the one with Diane Lane? Oh, I also like the, the one Tuscan with. Uh, he did the one with um, Demi Moore and Woody Harrelson. Oh, that was a good one. The, oh, indecent proposal. That's indecent a good one. proposals. Yes. Fantastic. He's got this unbelievable sort of craft, you know, uh, uh, um, that I, I just think is, you know, I mean, maybe I know a lot of those guys came out of uh, British television commercials and and they have the, like Alan Parker uh, and uh, Adrian Lynn and, and uh, um, you know, they have this amazing sort of... Uh, visual sense and sense of craft it's all very uh yeah i like that they right. put glasses on woody and made him an architect yeah. <laughs> yes well, thing is good you have the bombs. feeling that what whatever he's after sort of mentally he's actually seizing exactly that perfectly on film which is really something on that wonderful if slightly i guess surprising note um joel and ethan cohen ethan and joel cohen thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat to us thank um you. hail caesar out the yeah. beginning of beginning of march go see it Joel Ethan Cohen there, and let's start the review section, uh, truncated review section, sadly, uh, this this week uh, with Hail Caesar, John Nugent. Yes, so Hail Caesar is essentially a sort of 1950s screwball comedy set in a, a fictional Hollywood studio. 
incidentally, it's the same Hollywood studio uh, mentioned in Barton Fink, which is a really nice touch. It feels like a sort of shared Cohen universe. And there's so many cast members in this film. I guess the lead would be Josh Brolin, who plays Eddie Mannix, who is actually a real-life sort of studio fixer. Mm. Um, It's a very uh, fictionalised version of of Eddie Mannix. But he's he's basically the guy who fixes things. He's the guy who sorts stuff out. And he has to deal with various different crises in uh, in the studio. The main one of which is George Clooney, who plays a sort of uh, idiotic actor being kidnapped and it's it's all about trying to track him down while trying to juggle various other crises in mm. in the studio so you've got an amazing cast as as i mentioned josh brolin george clooney you've also got scarlett johansson you have channing tatum uh, there's there's ray fines mm. there's olden aaron Hike, who's a bit of a newcomer but he almost steals the show as a sort of singing cowboy type mm-hmm. uh, tilda swinton plays dual roles as a twin sister journalists mm-hmm. and it's it's a very interesting sort of move from the coens because it is essentially a comedy they are sort of going with a lighter touch here but it's it's very charming it's very likable it it's a very lovely sort of pastiche of of classical hollywood uh, particularly the sort of classical hollywood that's sort of a bit crap you know it it takes a, a sort of wry look at these sort of slightly more b-movie style movies like um you know roman epics or big dashing musicals and and you do wonder if some of these big dance numbers are, are maybe a bit indulgent I, I i'm not sure that channing tatum singing and tap dancing for 10 minutes really furthers the plot 10 minutes yeah, it's five or 10 minutes so it, it you know it doesn't, doesn't add much narrative depth or characterization but it is a huge amount of fun and you know any coen brothers movie is filled with incredible sort of craft uh, it might not be the coens at their absolute height but it's still even even a sort of a, a very good as opposed to an excellent coen brothers movie is head and shoulders above the the rest of the competition i would say yeah yeah i kind of go that we, we gave it four stars um i enjoyed it a lot uh, though i think it's basically a series of vignettes that are hmm. uh, seem to be unrelated to each other but um do work out in the end uh, it's very coen-esque um of the George Clooney is an idiot uh, part of their their oeuvre uh, it's it it, lank, it lurks behind uh, Bernard Fariding and Old Brother were out there for me but it's probably up there with intolerable cruelty it's very very funny at times there's an amazing scene between uh, Ray Fiennes and Alton Ehrenreich where uh Ray Fiennes tried to try to teach this terrible, terrible actor who would not change his name to Mr. Good at Acting. He's just he's bad at acting. Um in case you didn't get that. Um and he teaches tries to teach him how to say one phrase in particular over and over again. And I was just sitting there watching it, laughing my head off, going, Well, this is this is a classic scene. This is uh, this will be in the magazine in about two years' time. Um it's so, so funny. And there's a lot of stuff like that. Scarlett Johansson's very, very good as a kind of Live action baby Herman. Uh, it looks like Butterwood melting her mouth, and then she's got this very broad accent, and she's quite coarse, and she's always getting up to no good. Josh Brolin's a good anchor in the in the central role. Clooney's fun when he's given stuff to do, um, and it's just got this sea of recognisable faces and just a sense of fun. But it didn't really hang together for me entirely. But I can see why we gave it four. And if you love the Coens, as we all do then it's uh, it's a good one. You, you you can't really go wrong with that at the cinema this week. Four stars for Hail Caesar. And next up is the return of Mike Banning. That's right. Uh, Secret Service agent from, def- definitely from America. Don't, don't look it up. 
I'm definitely from America. Um, played by Jerry Butler. From Hail Caesar to Hail Butler, yes. <laughs> uh, this is indeed the sequel to 2013's Olympus Has Fallen, uh, which was the second best White House Attack movie of that year. See, I'd say it was the first best. Uh, it the, does have the, the first best. best? It, 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 it was the first best. It does have uh, the best line, I'll give you that, which is, let's have a game of fuck off, you go first. Yeah, let's have a game of fuck off, you go first. There's a brilliant line, uh, there's a brilliant sequence in... Uh, <laughs> in uh, London Has Fallen where Jerry Butler doing an American accent is having an argument with an Englishman doing a Scottish accent and your brain just kind of pours out of your ears. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. This is indeed the sequel and upping the stakes this time, it's not the White House, it is the whole of London. No! It is under terrorist attack. Essentially the British Prime Minister has died of natural causes and as a result of that all the world leaders gather on our great capital to, uh, to mourn his passing. At which point we find out that the entire Metropolitan Police Force has been infiltrated by Islamic fundamentalists. This is the most hilariously... Uh, it's non-PC, I yeah, think. Little non-PC uh, in, in, mm. in every way, indeed. Literally non-PC. <laughs> um, well met. Yes, indeed. Uh, and met. So, Metropolitan. It's good. It's good. Good. Oh, we're punning like legends here. I know. Um, it's more than the film deserves. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. So the the whole of the Met turn against them, start killing everyone. All the London landmarks blow up in a spectacular shower of crap CG. <laughs> um, and Mike Banning once again uh, grabs beleaguered President Aaron Eckhart right. and tries to keep him alive. Now, that that's kind of the setup. Um, in comes Colin Salmon as perhaps the worst police commissioner since something out of the Naked Gun, where because the terrorists are disguised as policemen, his grand plan is we can't tell them from us, so we will, yes indeed, withdraw all police from London so as not to confuse anyone. So they essentially uh, concede London to the terrorists uh, and uh, the entire capital becomes a war zone. Uh, uh, with everyone searching for Jerry Butler, they've got the terrorist playbook and they're running it step by step. Exactly that. Wow. It's uh, it's the Taken Two of the Olympus franchise. I mean, it's just drivel. That good, huh? It really is. I mean, it's it's terrifyingly yeah. racist. Uh, there's a point where it's it's so racist. At one point, Jerry Butler plays accentuate, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, he does. He pulls <laughs> he it does. out. Oh, the accents he chooses. Uh, no, it's uh, at one point he tells the terrorist, "Why don't you pack up your shit and head back to fuck Hedistan? Which is I mean, just, I mean, it's just bad punning for a start, but also just borderline offensive. It's not borderline It's offensive. just offensive. It's offensive. Um, and then the, the terrorists who, for reasons beyond my ken, are, are holed up uh, in Brewer Street in Soho. Uh, they obviously take the fight to them and there's a whole thing and really it doesn't matter. Mm. This uh, is not as good as Olympus has fallen. Aaron Eckhart. <laughs> there's a statement. Uh, <laughs> yes. Aaron Eckhart gets to do more than be chained to a railing. So there's uh-huh. that. Um, and, uh, you know, there's some fun to be had from watching Jerry Butler sort of run around going, that's as London. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it, yeah, it's nonsense. Stuff gets blown up. Um, see it or don't see it, really. See it your your fate will it. not be affected either way. There we go. Two stars. It, you can't really say any better than that. Two stars then for London Has Fallen. Uh, also about this week, it's four stars uh, for Hitchcock Truffaut, a fantastic documentary by Kirk Jones about two of the finest filmmakers of all time, uh, Francois Hitchcock and Alfred Truffaut. Also about this week, it was two stars for the Robert Redford, Kate Blanchett movie by James Vanderbilt, Truth, about a journalist scandal that hit the likes of Dan Rather. And also... The Other Side of the Door, a horror film. We're given that three stars as well, which, of course, we always say in the podcast, is a recommendation. And that is it for this week's Emperor Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related film. We'll be joined by Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson. 
uh, co-directors of Anomalisa. Anomalisa? Am I saying that right? Anomalisa. Anomalisa. I can never say that right, but uh, the really interesting uh, puppet movie that's coming out next week. And also Anya Taylor-Joy, star of The Witch, fantastic horror film that's out next week, will be joining us as well. Uh, Until then, it is goodbye from Jimbo. That's Jimbo Cockburn to you. (laughs) It's goodbye from John. That's uh, John, very good actor to you. (laughs) (laughs) And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to change my name to Chris Good. Ending podcasts. See you next week.